Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which now feels, you know, a very, very long time, almost prehistoric time ago. Yes, I think I was um, a saber tooth uh, back when we, <laughs> when we began, Tom. <laughs> this week we're discussing Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, her blistering 2017 bestseller about race relations in the UK. To say it was well and widely received is an understatement. All across the book jacket and inside are words such as these, a revelation undoubtedly essential from the spectator, a wake-up call to a nation in denial from the observer, the most important book for me this year from actress Emma Watson of Harry Potter fame. It was Blackwell's nonfiction book of the year and was short and long listed for numerous other prestigious prizes and has sparked debate and activism that is still uh, going on strong today. At its core is the argument that Britain is institutionally and systemically racist and in denial about it. Just to add to those accolades, Zoe, I also saw it was recently named the most influential book written by a woman, that's a woman of any background, uh, in a recent poll put together by academics, publishers, booksellers, and then voted for by members of the public. You know, she beat Jermaine Greer, uh, she beat Mary Wollstonecraft. You know, this is seen as the most important book by a woman. And also, interestingly, it's now number one of nonfiction lists at the moment in the wake of, obviously, the murder of George Floyd, when these issues have really kind of come back to the fore. And she's the first um, black British author, indeed, to be number one in a nonfiction list. So I've really, and I'm going to speak personally for a moment, I've really enjoyed the chance actually to reflect much more on black British history recently. The shocking events in America have been a prompt to start kind of exploring more widely. And I do feel this book has been a useful invitation to think about questions of uh, diversity and kind of racial injustice in Britain. That said, one of the difficulties with this book is that Reniedo Lodge sort of anticipates that white people don't want to hear her message. You know, one of the main things that she's pushing back against is white denial. And as a result, I find it hard to critically dissect the book without falling into the trap of being another one of those white people who won't accept her analysis. And so it's a, it's a difficult book to position yourself against, where you might be sympathetic to some of its politics, but to even begin to criticize it, you feel like you're reinforcing um, the trope of the white person who is simply you know, allergic to what she's trying to say. What did you think, Zoe, about this kind of key concept of structural racism or kind of white privilege, um, which she places at the heart of the book? Well, just to go back to first what you were saying just now about um, the difficulty of, of critiquing this book or positioning oneself in relation to it in terms um, other than just 100% in agreement. I'm going to go further than you and say I think that's a, quite a serious problem with this mode of, of polemic and this mode of debate which is a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And she makes clear throughout the book that um, either you know, because of structural and systemic racism, that, which we'll get to in a sec, you are 
racist and you acknowledge it and are willing to be humble about it and do everything in your power to change it, or you don't think you're racist or you don't want to acknowledge that you are part of the problem and then you're even more part of the problem. And I don't regard that as a good or a healthy standpoint from which to open up a debate. In terms of structural racism, I mean, I am always uneasy um, about analyses that rest on assumptions of structural um, one thing or another. Uh, this makes me kind of an outlier, I have to admit, in the world of academic history, which I, I'm probably just an outlier anyway. Um, but I think the problem with it is um, it's a little bit the Foucauldian problem, the you know, Michel Foucault, the I mean, critical the cultural theorist, I don't know what you want to call him, actually, philosopher, um, who, who sort of creates a, a blisteringly convincing analysis in which power is both everywhere and nowhere. And when you when you refuse to sort of pinpoint anything to individuals and prefer instead to say everything is coming through a system or through, a, through structures, you end up with a very slippery view of the world or a very slippery argument in which nobody can ever escape from this schema. So how can you ever say, well, actually that person isn't quite what you say. There, there is such thing as individuality. There is such thing as potential. There is such thing as people not doing exactly what the system tells them to do. There's, there, essentially, there's difference and there's individuality. And this, uh, this emphasis to the exclusion of all other forms of analysis on structural racism and systemic racism shuts it down and leaves absolutely no room for thinking about personal not just responsibility, but personal taste, personal psychology, other factors which don't necessarily come into what she says is structural. And then if we really try to pinpoint what is meant by structural, um, yeah, okay, the police, um, education, things like that. And yes, there are clearly statistics and realities that show a disadvantage there among um, people of Afro-Caribbean or Afro-African heritage. But the causation and the reasons for all of that are not always straightforward. So to just say it's systemic, it's structural racism, I really do think dangerously flattens out what is actually a very complicated present and past. I, I entirely agree, Zoe. I've just got a quote here um, that encapsulates that sense of kind of how pervasive she sees white privilege as. You know, at one point she talks about it as noxious gas in the book. I mean, that racism is something that sort of seeps through all of kind of British society. Um, here she says, white privilege is a manipulative, suffocating blanket of power that envelops everything we know, like a snowy day. Um, that idea that racism is kind of pervasive um, is a model that's obviously very common in some of the kind of key uh, Afro-American writers after the Second World War. I'm thinking of people like you know, W.D. Boyce or indeed James Baldwin, who she's clearly read who wanted to deconstruct whiteness. You know, one of the things they wanted to do was to make whiteness a category, to kind of remove the idea that it was the invisible norm, that it was the silent standard, and actually expose what was arbitrary within that. Um, and I think in many ways, uh, Edo Lodge is doing something very similar. Although she says she doesn't want to talk to white people about this, this is a book that is clearly aimed at trying to raise the consciousness of white liberal readers that racism is their problem that it is their inheritance and that she wants them to reflect upon it. Um, at one point she says, racism is a white problem. It reveals the anxieties, hypocrisies, and double standards of whiteness. So she's coming from a tradition that, as I say, is very common amongst kind of great African-American intellectuals like James Baldwin, and is now applying some of that to British society to say that you know, the British white establishment or indeed every white Britain is complicit in a system of oppression or a system of um, exclusion 
that they haven't yet faced up to and that they're not willing to address. Um, as part of that, she's very hostile to the idea that there can be any standards which are colorblind. You know, she's very keen to say that there's nothing really that can transcend race. You know, the very idea of meritocracy for her is something that is contaminated by its link to a white, a fundamentally kind of racist tradition. And so it ends up being a book that is extremely um, iconoclastic, really, and sort of makes you think that all British institutions and indeed all British moral standards are somehow kind of toxic because of their unacknowledged relationship with white power. And I think that gets into really interesting but dangerous ground when you start saying that things like rationality, um, reason, meritocracy, free speech are all kind of polluted with a sort of malign, uh, racist ideology. And she repeatedly refers to things like free speech and especially meritocracy as being basically a feint for, um, for white power to kind of continue to, to perpetuate itself. She's absolutely right you know, that, that the cause of free speech has often been hijacked and used as a fig leaf for really nasty, thuggish racism. But that does not mean that free speech itself is inherently something to sneer at and guard against as a kind of red flag signaling a racist is, is talking here. So I suppose what makes me uncomfortable is when all the terms that you might use to kind of try to get at something that seems true or that is true, to chip away towards the truth, that includes important ideas of like political philosophy like liberty and free speech um when things like that become part of the racist problem because they're associated with a system with the liberal democracy that was you know like britain the, the way our system developed was at a time when there was empire and all that sort of thing i just think it, it leaves you with a very impoverished difficult and dangerous set of moves you can you can make i mean i i wouldn't know how to express myself if everything that involves norms essentially norms to do with fairness justice clarity um and things like that are kind of laughed at and taken as examples of, of white privilege in action i think this idea of the emotional uh tenor of the book is really interesting she puts this is not just about politics she puts emotional justice at the core of this um and it, seemed, you know, it seems very, very pronounced. She talks again and again about the onus not being on victims or, or the victims of racism. It's not being on black people to uh, change things. It, the onus should not be on them to teach white people the error of their ways, although that's exactly what she seems to be doing. Um, and I think it's a really interesting obsession. And it seems very of the moment where people are not only trying to fight for a particular thing, i.e. to reduce racism or to end inequality, but they want it to be done in a particular way that feels emotionally fair. So, so it's, it's a sort of second thing that has to be done. Um, and I just think, you know, when I think of the suffragettes or the suffragists, they were not saying it's the onus isn't on us to teach men that we need the vote. I mean, they just took on the onus because that's the way things were. So I think it's a really interesting new way um, of, doing, of doing politics. And I think it really came through. And I'll just briefly say there's an interview in this book with a mixed race girl, the implication being that mixed race relationships are held up as being an example of Britain becoming more and more genuinely multicultural and less racist or more colorblind rather. Edo Lodge wants to argue that actually it just raises more complexities um, potentially more problems than it solves when she sees mixed race children she interviews a mixed race girl who has a white mother and a black father who she doesn't see and the girl says or a woman says when i see a mixed race when she says 
when I see mixed race children, I think, is that child going to get what they need? Because I didn't get what I needed. I think for white people who are in interracial relationships or have mixed race children or who adopt transracially, the only way that it will work is if they are actually committed to being anti-racist, to be humble and to learn that they are racist, even if they don't think they are. This is asking for a lot of emotional work on behalf of a parent who just thinks may think they're doing the best they can by their child. I do think it's a really interesting part of the of this whole, not only her polemic, but the way these culture wars um, and social justice is being fought um, more generally. Tom, do you think that it's everyone's responsibility to be actively anti-racist or else face charges of complicity? I mean, I, as speaking as a Jewish person who's very aware of quite a lot of anti-Semitism that, that just basically gets called something else. I, I don't expect people to wage war on my behalf. So what do you think about that? I think checking your privilege is not a bad slogan to have in one's head. But at one point in the book, um, Edo Lodge herself has to acknowledge that she is something of an insider in terms of having been university educated and since then having had a very successful media career. So it's important, I think, to get away from some of these dichotomies about whiteness and blackness and actually think much more about how all of us you know, by in comparison to others, might have particular advantages. Um, one thing I just wanted to, so there were two things I wanted to say. One, in response to the point about um, mixed race kids, Trevor Phillips, in his, I have to say, quite scathing review of this book, pointed out the fact, the mere fact that there are so many um, and growing numbers of mixed race children and mixed race families in Britain suggests that integration is progressing far quicker, maybe, um, than the diagnosis of racism that, that Edo Lodge would suggest. Um, and just to confirm your point about how for her, these kind of questions of whiteness and blackness are not even just about skin color, but they're actually about relations of power more broadly. I mean, going back to Baldwin and then even you know, back to Foucault. Um, I just want to read this quote. The politics of whiteness transcends the color of anyone's skin. It is an occupying force in the mind. It is a political ideology that is concerned with maintaining power through domination and exclusion. And so this book is an invitation for all of us as well-meaning white people to battle that whiteness in our heads. And I think that it's asking people to be activists on behalf of others that's actually quite disempowering for um, black and minority communities. One transition I'd make there um, actually is into how she talks about history in that this is a vision of history that doesn't actually give much recognition to the role of black Britons or uh, minorities in actually challenging the status quo. I mean, her story is overwhelmingly, in the way she sketches it, about the oppression of the British Empire or the injustice of the British state. But I think she could have actually given much more credit, actually, to the role of black Britons in challenging some of these norms. What did you think about the way she uses history, Zoe? Well, Again, I mean, speaking as someone who who often brings bits of history into the polemics that I write, I mean, I think, you know, fair enough, she's making a polemic, she's making an argument, so she brings in the bits of history that suit that. Suit that. But I, I think it's not just that she didn't bring in the, the work of, of Black Britons and changing history, it's that every positive advance is then represented or retooled as, an, as a further example of being either too slow off the bat or you know, not done to high, enough or enthusiastically enough. And, not, and so it's unclear at what point you're allowed to say that there are, there's progress alongside the bad stuff. I um, mean, it just feels like a compressed and quite a sort of one-sidedly dismal view, even though much of what she's retelling in her histories chapter 
are examples of, of successful lobbying by Black Britons, but then also receptiveness and reflexiveness in the institutions that have had problems. So I don't understand quite why it, it cannot be acknowledged that there are moments when clearly things are changing. Um, and I think we've talked about that, haven't we, Tom? I mean, do you, do you think, how do you think she deals the question of change in the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years? I'd say I, the question of change in the past 30 years is invisible. I mean, I, I know that obviously what she's writing is not a work of history. And for those who are interested in that history, you know, David Olusugo more recently has done a wonderful uh, job of actually sketching Black British history. Um, whereas her version of history is slavery, a little bit on uh, the world wars, uh, the Windrush moment and the histories of racism in the 50s and 60s and 70s, truly dreadful. Um, but then almost nothing really about the 90s and the start of the 21st century. And as a result, it feels like a lot of her critical discourse, as I say, goes back to the 70s. And also some of her history seems frozen at the moment um, of, you know, the, the Tottenham or the, or the Brixton riots. Um, and as a result, she doesn't really have very much to say about the Black British experience in the past 30 years. I mean, one amazing omission in the book I thought was very strange was no mention of the war on terror. Um, and yet she wants to understand where racism is coming from. She, you know, alludes to Islamophobia once or twice. But if you, you know, if you want to understand white fear about the non-white population, not talking about terrorism um, as a role of that, or indeed not talking about kind of gang culture or any of the other kind of bogeymen of the white imagination, it's weird how little recent history there is there. Um, one of the only voices that does appear is Nick Griffin, who she yeah. casts almost as a, as a sort of prophet, as the man who began to articulate a racist discourse that she thinks has now permeated society. Yeah, the Griffin interview sits strangely in the book. I wouldn't say he's the person I'd go to for being particularly formative in discourse, whether that be Brexit discourse, which some people would argue is inherently racist, or whether that be the, you know, the Tommy Robinsons of the world or the kind of more alt-right side. I mean, Griffin almost feels like a bit of an outdated character. And the, the main point you could say is that how, how very little power he ever attains, certainly not politically, and how, ba how badly these far-right people actually do in, when it comes to being taken seriously as, as political force. They never succeed at all. So they are these sort of slightly fringe people with a following, for sure. Unpleasant man, terrible politics. To point him out as a sort of sine qua non of Britain's race problems in the, in the contemporary, as you say, seem very strange. I, I completely agree, Zoe. Griffin is a, is a curious um, example. But I think her, you know, anxiety or her reticence to talk about Islam is also part of a bigger issue, which is that, you know, this is positioned as the mouthpiece for black uh, British experience, which is understood as nearly all people of color. At various moments she talks about, she's talking for everyone who is non-white. And yet I think in the way that she assembles the different histories, you can see the tension between these very different experiences of being you know, an East Asian or a South Asian in Britain compared to the Afro-Caribbean experience, which is really what she's talking to. So under this kind of banner of people of color, there are radically different colonial histories, you know, whether it be histories of sepoys in the First World War or histories of Atlantic slavery. And she's sort of effacing all of those differences in order to present this kind of rather monolithic history of racism that clearly I think lots of lots of kind of different um, varieties of immigrant experience including the Muslim experience is completely subsumed by or kind of can't be much explained by. Yeah there is this recurrent issue with 
um, a very unitary, a very a sort of almost airless analysis, which doesn't allow for complexity. It's a polemic, so maybe it's not meant to be dwelling on complexity. But yes, I think that it's a really important thing, this business of lumping black together, which was certainly has been done since the, the civil rights movements, or, or I should say the kind of liberatory movements of the 70s, this idea that black Britain is all people of yeah asian east asian non-white but i think it's extremely problematic to lump them all together because it's just overriding and and essentially to use the language of Edo lodge erasing these histories um and Mm. these different experiences and and i don't think if i were let's say indian or chinese that i would necessarily want someone to say well i'm 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 in this block and that is my experience and i'm victim to the exact same things that this group is it's all part of this drive to flatten things out it's very manichean or man is it manichean it's this very manichean scheme another area where this quite similar thing is at play but it's slightly different terrain is in her relationship with feminism tom mm. and it's kind of internal fractures and she has a very long chapter in this book devoted to feminism. It's probably the longest one. And she's a very shrewd um, analyst of, of what feminism um, is, is to her, I would say. She, however, as the chapter goes on, what is revealed is, is unbelievable hostility towards the feminist movement in Britain. She recalls being, uh, you know, belittled or whatever. Um, and I'm including just, with Caroline Criado, Criado Perez. Perez, exactly. So it's a real. So I think there was something sort of quite sh- shocking about the degree with which she seems to really hate the feminist movement, in as much as she sees it as a white feminist movement. And she even goes so far as to project Enoch Powell style mm-hmm. sentiments on white feminists. At one point, she says that she's surprised that no white feminist has said yet something like in 10 to 15 years the black woman will have the whip hand over the white woman it's quite extreme i think some explanation for that is her authors that she's consulting and that um as well as i said earlier she's reading you know baldwin and du bois um, in this tradition she's reading people like audra lord and she's reading bell hooks and for them it's this great theme of intersectionality that, um, that emerges, so Edo Lodge thinks, and that Edo Lodge is most committed to. And as a result, she thinks feminism that doesn't have an anti-racism at its core is going to be kind of intellectually impoverished. And so a lot of that battle is about how far she's, feminism and anti-racism should be allies um, and indeed are the same analysis. And for her, they are. And to fail to acknowledge that is to miss a key part of what she sees as a much bigger revolutionary agenda. It's also to be racist, as she, she puts very plainly. Um, so in and, and her view, is it's no good being a feminist if you're a racist feminist. So she does, she is very stark about that. I think what I found um, problematic about this chapter um, wasn't the point she was making about the present. And I would wager she has more experience of that than me. And I would not disavow her experience of racism in the feminist movement if that's what she has experienced. But the idea, the implication that this is not a, that this is a new issue, or, or the idea that that this that feminism has never taken account of this, that this has never been something that anybody's brought to the attention of the public before, or or that nobody's ever raised before within feminist circles, when in fact, the whole women's liberation movement from the 1970s ultimately collapsed in the 1980s over race, black feminists. Um, began to organize and get a stronger and stronger voice and they found they they set up um organizations for black um british uh feminists that were separatist 
they did an analysis of why feminism for white women uh, or, or the predominantly white feminist feminism that was you know de rigueur in the 70s didn't have any didn't sort of meet the needs or the issues or the realities of black women in britain and it the separatism um and the hostility between the between the groups as well as a lot of attempts by white feminists to um de-racistify de themselves um did lead to such kind of splits that the, the movement basically couldn't really survive beyond the 80s it, it was it was just the, the issue of race ended up showing that you know there's no such thing as woman essentially that was that was what emerged within among feminist circles women's liberation movement started off with this idea of an all-embracing sisterhood by the 1980s, the idea was that in saying the word woman, that was in itself racist and that actually a white woman had no business saying the first thing for or against a black woman because they were kind of almost so radically different. So it's very sort of what you might call difference feminism, that the black, black women and white women can never be kind of joined up. If I can just pick up on one other thing, is it's where you see her kind of anti-capitalist politics really start to come to the fore as well, which, which are deployed only really in the later sections of the book. Um, but at one moment, she defines feminism as uh, a movement that works to liberate all people who've been economically, socially, and culturally marginalized by an ideological system that's been designed for them to fail. Again, this thing about are the inequalities in British society by intent or are they kind of unexpected consequences of kind of historic structures? For her, they are designed to let people down. That means disabled people, black people, trans people, women and non-binary people, LGB people and working class people. Uh, feminism will have won when we have ended poverty and so on. I mean, it's a real 1970s vision of, you know, socialism and feminism going together hand in hand. And it completely overlooks, as you say, Zoe, the fact that that union broke down in the 1980s precisely over this question of racial difference. So there is a naivety, I think, in the way that she approaches lots of these questions, because it suggests that she hasn't really been thinking very much about the past 40 years worth of politics or indeed kind of um, broader writing. And um, on that thing about naivety, I suppose one last thing I wanted to raise, Zoe, is how you know prophetic you think the book is or how timely the book is. Um, in the edition that I've just read, it has a new aftermath chapter in which she looks back on the politics of the past sort of five years and says that so much of what she described or diagnosed has come true. You know, that kind of racism is on the ascendant, um, you know, that uh, black people are being silenced around the world. Uh, how, you know, how well do you think the book does map onto our current political moment? I mean, certainly there are chapters in here about roads must fall that clearly are kind of being played out all around us in the headlines. But, but how, do, how do you think the analysis holds up? The analysis, it's only written in 2017. I mean, I think she, what's funny about it, reading it now, is that she didn't know necessarily that when it got published, it would be such a smash hit that, that whose effects would sort of go on and on and on. And the fact that that's exactly what happened suggests that, you know, it was not only, it wasn't just prophetic, it was tapping into something of that very moment three years ago. So I think these things have been brewing for quite a long time in the same way that the culture wars have been brewing, which is about the soul of the West and, you know, what, what we have to do in relation to our history to cleanse ourselves of that history and, and be not offensive and not exploitative and all those sorts of things. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's been prophetic. I, I don't agree at all with this idea that Trump and Brexit are the same thing and therefore in, in foreseeing you know, these mass white populism and stuff. I, I just don't, she eludes without any question Brexit with Trump. And I, I can see it in Trump. But again, in the British case, I think it's more complicated. And I, I just don't see Brexit. I think Brexit had racist elements, but I don't think that's necessarily 
primarily what it's about. Do you and I disagree on Brexit, Zoe? But I would agree that actually the way that Brexit has played out has actually revealed a deep Euroscepticism in Britain that actually is not simply about questions of um, ethnic difference. You know, it's not just a fear of brown people or black people that is driving Brexit. It's a bigger anxiety about, you know, Eastern Europeans in some ways. Well, that's it. I mean, on the con- Very nasty racism in this country well, in the past few years. Well, I would argue that's not racism. I mean, because they're, I mean, unless you're talking about Slavs. Xenophobia. Xenophobia of certain kinds. And anxiety about people who may not fit in, who speak differently, who eat different kinds of foods. There is a kind of there is a chauvinism definitely that has that has expanded. Um, but I do think it's interesting with Brexit that it doesn't map onto straightforward kind of racial no. divides either. A lot of ethnic minority people voted for Brexit precisely because they saw it as a more global, you know, Britain returning to looking beyond Europe in a way. Yeah. And so she she fails to understand that dynamic within it. Yeah, I mean, uh, the result of Brexit is going to be that we have a lot more um, interactions with Asia and, and Africa and China, I presume, and South America. I mean, I mean, it's in fact, it's sort of, yeah, it's going to have the, the opposite. I mean, that, that may not be the hot take to take from it, but that's definitely one side of Brexit that seems really fundamental. She has a, a chapter about class in this book. And do you think that she successfully answers that question about class and race uh because obviously there's been a lot of people who say well look it's not just ethnic minorities there are a lot of struggling working class white people they're the ones that do the worst at school they get overlooked because they don't have the claims of minority status that kind of thing what what did you make of her analysis of of class i wouldn't go in that direction i mean i i do think the you know it depends what polls we're looking at i mean there is evidence that some inner city schools for instance um, and black kids in those schools are outperforming white working class kids who are in rural schools, which are also kind of massively underfunded. And by and large, I think there is evidence that there are kind of worse life outcomes and a variety of different institutional forms. Um, But I think her points about class, you know, that we need to think about how race is kind of encoded within class, I think are legitimate. Um, And I think, you know, a, a book that did a really good job on that recently is that book Natives by Arcala, whose subtitle is Race and Class and the Ruins of Empire. And there it's all about how these forms of kind of exclusion, you know, might feed off each other. I mean, one thing Arcala says that I think is very interesting, and again, Edo Lodge has nothing to say about, is the impact of Thatcherism on um, uh, minority ethnic communities. And actually, there might be parallels in terms of some of the social problems that you found in the 1980s and 90s in terms of unemployment or in terms of family breakdown in post-industrial white communities in the north of England as there are in some minority kind of inner city ethnic communities are kind of in London. So, so there is, there are kind of relationships there between race and class, but as ever with her, the lens is too, you know, is too blunt, you know, is too, uh, you know, it, it's too reductive a reading and she's not willing to do the research to properly kind of follow these things up and properly kind of back them up. Um, so to bring this to a close, let me just ask you then, uh, why the hype? Um, I think the hype has to do with an appetite at the moment for, a kind of easy radicalism or a kind of a sort of liberal call for, I don't really mean liberal, but progressive, self-styled progressive call for uh, revolution to sort of lump together all these great evils from capitalism to racism to classism to patriarchy. And they're all seen as kind of roughly coming from the same cauldron. I think what is coming through here is a is a sort of hostility as i say an emotional temperature which really appeals to those people fighting these mass movement battles now um as an example you know i was struck reading um 
in her uh, chapter on feminism, the way she phrases it. She says, it's clear that equality doesn't quite cut it. Asking for a sliver of a disproportional power is too polite a request. I don't want to be included. Instead, I want to question who created the standard in the first place. After a lifetime of embodying difference, I have no desire to be equal. I want to deconstruct the structural power of a system that marked me out as different. I don't wish to be assimilated into the status quo. I want to be liberated from all negative assumptions that my characteristics bring. The onus is not on me to change. Instead, it's the world around me. And I drew attention a little bit to that before, this obsession with whose job it is to do what instead of just focusing on the thing itself. But this sort of, I don't want to be included, this idea that we're almost post-equality because we're returning so, so vehemently to the question of redistribution of power as the fundamental question rather than, um, rather than outcomes. You know, nothing so trivial as being included or equality. No, 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 we need to, we need to deconstruct. That's the heart of this. So it's on one hand, it's simple. Um, the simple radicalism. On the other hand, it's it's calling for something that's far too complex for any movement to be able to bring about. Um, I don't think anybody in the history of the world or future is ever going to satisfactorily deconstruct something as their main, you know, answer to uh, to inequality. I mean, full deconstruction of structural power. I mean, this is very much rooted in a in a particular leftist social science tradition. Um, and so, I but I'm interested that that tapped in so much to the current mood and it, it clearly did so i think the hype um the hype is about the fact that everybody now seems to be taking a very simplistic a simplistic take on the world and on history i don't think much complexity is permitted or welcomed in this schema it's sort of us and you ver us versus them and if you disagree you're part of the problem and there's something about that that really appeals to the present moment and i'm not quite sure what but it's it's complicated what do you think tom why the hype uh, I wouldn't sign off on everything that you've said there, Zoe, but, uh, but I would say that the book is a provocation, uh, and I think people have liked being riled up by it. I think even people who felt angered by the book or felt kind of uncomfortable with the book have actually been addicted to it. And I think that's one of the ways that the conversation about race is moving at the moment, is that it's gone from being a taboo, because it was sensitive, because it was difficult, to a thing that actually people now are struggling to find a language about and people are kind of weirdly fascinated by. Like, yeah. you know, they're all rushing to kind of reflect on it and to kind of embrace it. So it, it tapped into a sense that a subject which had been marginalized is now becoming kind of absolutely mainstream. Um, it, exactly as you say, has a kind of slightly utopian dimension to the politics, which is not very about specific goals, but is all about generating rage or frustration or feeling. And as a kind of, you know, invitation to feel angry, the book has been very successful in its marketing and in some of the language that it uses. Um, but like you, Zoe, I don't think ultimately it's a book that really will allow us to have the next phase of conversation. It's a book that reinforces a sense of disconnect and a sense of anger rather than creating a critical conversation about how we move forward. Um, if I can end with a quote by Roxane Gay, um, Roxane Gay says, we need to stop playing privilege or oppression Olympics because we'll never get anywhere until we find more effective ways of talking about difference. And I think that's really what we need to do is to be able to start having a conversation about difference, whereas this book kind of reinforces the sense of impasse. And in saying that, Tom, we both realize that we are absolutely laying ourselves open to being, again, symptomatic uh, with bells on of the problem. Hey, maybe I am part of the problem. I don't see how there will ever be a satisfactory official 
verdict on that. Anyway, so join <laughs> Zoe, us. Zoe, you're definitely problematic. I'm so problem. I mean, let's face it, I am. <laughs> so join us next week for Sapiens by Yuval Noah Hariri. 